Welcome back to Morpeth Moments. I'm Marlene and I'll be telling stories of true crime, about murder, other tragedies and sometimes some interesting tidbits involving people who had connections with the town of Morpeth, New South Wales and its surrounding districts, as convicts, soldiers and settlers made this area their home, stayed for a while to discover their niche or moved on to seek their fortune. The stories are based in the 19th and early 20th century. The accounts are researched and referenced by myself from open-sourced information, family research, state archive records and trove newspapers. Music by Kevin MacLeod. Sound effects by Sound Bible. I tell my stories with great respect for the victims and their families. I would also like to occasionally add in episodes about quirky, weird and wonderful stories as well. I also retain all the information I find with family trees, other articles and interesting tidbits. Please feel free to email me. My address is on my podcast page. If there is any misinformation or you would like to find out more, please contact me here. This episode covers the life of Patrick John Kelly, who was affiliated with the bushranger Frederick Wordsworth Ward, better known as Captain Thunderbolt, in the late 1860s. In the 1840s, Fred Ward's parents moved from Wilberforce, New South Wales, to the Maitland district. His father passed away when he was very young. He learned his bush skills from his older brothers, He was the youngest in a large family. He obtained work at the age of 11 years in the New England district. Fred was responsible for guiding his new employers from Morpeth along the Great North Road to the Alberboldi Station. It was a huge responsibility. Fred continued to work as a station hand, as a drover and a horsebreaker at various stations in the northern districts occasionally returning to his family in West Maitland. In the 1850s, Fred worked for a year or so at Tokal as a horsebreaker. Members of his family worked there at various times also. Thunderbolt began his bushranging career when he got involved with his blackguard nephews who stole horses from Tokal. He was caught, sentenced and sent to Cockatoo Island to serve 10 years hard labour. In 1863, Fred and another prisoner absconded from there and made their way to the New England district. On the 22nd of December 1863, he robbed a toll bar operator at Rutherford, New South Wales. Later in 1865, Fred joined up with Patrick John Kelly and Jemmy the Whisperer and went on another bushranging rampage in the northwestern districts. In December 1865, Jemmy shot a policeman, but he was not killed. You may recall from the previous episode about Melville and Long Harry, the first men hanged at Maitland Jail, that Jemmy, in 1843, was the head of his tribe. Patrick John Kelly was born in County Tyrone in about 1831. He came to New South Wales with his parents, Miles and Unity Kelly, and his siblings, Miles Jr., Sarah and baby William, on the ship Herald in 1841. They settled in the Maitland area. Patrick John Kelly 
married Mary Ann Cushion at St. John's Church, West Maitland, in 1857. He was 28 years of age, and Mary was 26 years. They had three children, David, born 1858, in West Maitland, Sarah, born 1860, same, and Patrick Joseph, born 1863, same. For over 20 years, Patrick was never in trouble with the law. Patrick's first crime was in August 1865, near Walgett. He stole the local constable's horse and revolver. He had left his wife and three children to join up with Frederick Ward, a.k.a. Thunderbolt, in about October 1865, and rode with Fred's second gang through Walgett, Merriwar, Kula, and Manila areas. His description, six feet in height, strong build, dark complexion, brown hair, dark bushy whiskers, a fine black handsome beard, hazel eyes, small broken nose, rough voice with strong Irish accent, described as a fine-made man and rather genteel in appearance. They robbed homesteads, hotels, the mail and stole horses from the homestead paddocks. For about five months, the law tried to apprehend them. The gang went their separate ways in February of 1866. Patrick John Kelly and Jemmy the Whisperer left together. The following is a report from the correspondent of the Maitland Mercury, 10th of March 1866, of the apprehension of Patrick John Kelly. Patrick John Kelly, as he is pleased to style himself, who has so recently acquired such an unenviable notoriety by pillaging townships, robbing males, and committing diverse other offences, has at last been neatly bagged and safely lodged in the watch house upon his township by Senior Constable McCabe of the Walgut Police, assisted by Troopers Murray and Simmons and the Black Tracker. The circumstances connected with his apprehension are as follows. During the past week, the police were doing patrol duty in the neighbourhood of Colorenabri, Earl's public house, some 50 miles from Walgut, and ascertaining that some of the bush-ranging fraternity were in the vicinity, they determined to survey the area very closely. For a time, however, their efforts were unsuccessful. They then directed their attention to the public house, where they heard that Kelly had been operating upon the pecuniary resources of the landlord the day previous, shouting for all hands, and making himself absolutely monarch of all he surveyed during the time he remained. This was an unexpected stimulant for his pursuers, and they resolved to push their search with a renewed vigour. But an apparently trivial circumstance led them to their game earlier than they anticipated. Just as they were departing from the house, a man was observed to leave it also, and with the instinctive wariness which every member of the force should possess, they instantly dropped back. To allay suspicion, they continued in an arc direction, and after some twenty minutes doubled round and picked his tracks, which they followed for half a mile when the tracker suddenly exclaimed, Me see him! Kelly and his companion, being thrown off their guard by the ruse of the police, 
were enjoying themselves in fancied security. Kelly's horse being tied up some ten yards from him, and his full revolvers, which were found fully charged, were lying carelessly upon the sward out of reach. Without deliberating one moment, the police charged down upon them, but simultaneous with the movement, the bushranger had detected them and sprang towards his pistols. But the deadly struggle that must have ensued, had Kelly attained his object, was prevented by the promptness of action the police displayed in defeating his intention. Foiled in the attempt, he, with extraordinary agility, succeeded in securing his horse, and leaping into the saddle, drove both spurs into his sides. The animal became resistive, plunged violently, and finally reared over. Kelly, for a moment, stood like a stag at bay, and the next instant rustled down the river bank. The black tracker then fired, the ball passing through the side of Kelly's coat. He was then hailed to surrender, to avoid being shot down, but refused, and the police, not knowing whether he had arms on him or not, acted with caution. But while closing upon him, he dived into the river, at this place thirty yards wide, and swam across, being at that time enveloped in coat, vest, breeches, and riding boots. Troopers Murray and Simmons repeatedly fired their rifles, but the shots proved ineffective, as Kelly only showed his head for breath and instantly ducked again. When he gained the opposite bank, he remained in the water up to his chest and appealed in a supplicating tone to Mackay, who had him covered, not to shoot him down like a dog. By Jove I will, if you shift an inch, was the reply. Kelly was upon one side of the river, and the police and the man they found with the bushranger upon the other. It was then arranged that Murray and Simmons should keep the man they had and Kelly covered, until McCabe and the tracker went some half-mile up the river to the fording place, and returned to Kelly and secured him. But a fresh turn was given to the case by Kelly making a dart up the bank, having taken his boots off unperceived in the water and despite the firing, he got away. McCabe and the tracker now galloped off, and after a search of an hour and a half, returned to Colorado Bry, unsuccessful. He then procured the services of another blackfellow, and renewed the search, which was crowned with success. Kelly being taken about 6pm on the 22nd, five hours after he had first sighted him. Kelly is a fine-made man, in height about six feet, black full beard, about 37 years of age, and very respectable in appearance. The other man, James Wilson, is a sawyer, and has been sometime engaged by Mr. Earl, the publican. His connection with Kelly may possibly give him some trouble. After his trial at Tamworth Police Court, he was transferred in May 1866 from Tamworth Jail to Maitland Jail. On the 22nd and 23rd of October 1866, Patrick was tried at the Maitland Circuit Court before Justice Fawcett on five counts, including robbery under arms, stealing and mail robbery, and found guilty of the first two charges, receiving 17 years hard labour on the roads, then pleaded guilty for the rest of the charges. 
This added two years hard labour at Darlinghurst Jail to be served concurrently. Note. Patrick and Mary were only separated in distance, not in love. During the course of the trial, Kelly's wife sat veiled and sorrowful in the front dock and only changed her place when her unfortunate husband departed from the court. On the 31st of October 1866, Patrick was forwarded to Dullinghurst Jail. On the 7th of November, he was forwarded to Berrimer Jail. In April 1867, he was transferred from Berrimer to Parramatta Jail. Bushranging was in epidemic proportions throughout the colony. The governing authorities realised that long prison sentences were not the answer, as this resulted in overcrowded jails, reports of violence and numerous escape attempts, not to mention the financial burden on the government. The solution was the use by the New South Wales Colonial Government of Section 4 of Act 11, Victoria No. 34, titled An Act to Substitute Other Punishments for Transportation Beyond the Seas. In summary, Section 4 stated that the Governor was empowered to grant pardons on conditional exile and to make rules for remission of sentence as an incentive to good conduct. Patrick John Kelly was released from jail in 1873 under a general amnesty and was exiled to America along with Frank Gardiner, another well-known bushranger. It is not known what happened to Patrick Kelly. I'd like to look into what happened to him if I can. I found this article in reference to Frank Gardiner, though there is no mention of Patrick. Was he with him? Utah Mountain Echo, 4th of June, 1879 Intense excitement was occasioned in this city yesterday by the tidings that a party of 43 immigrants from the east and bound hither were corralled the day previous in Trajo Pass by a band of mounted desperados armed to the teeth and robbed of what coin and jewellery they possessed, together with a quantity of provisions. The train, consisting of four covered wagons and seven pack mules, had just entered the canyon, and some adjustment in the freight was being made preparatory to ascending the intricate road which skirts the precipice known as Eagle Falls. When the marauders, twelve in number, suddenly surrounded the caravan, and presenting their revolvers at the pilgrim group, demanded a surrender of all the coin at the command of the train. The immigrants being almost unarmed and surprised as they were in so sudden a manner, 
Their only alternative was submission to the tender mercies of the freebooters, who at once instituted an overhaul of the freight. The women and children screamed, and the men looked on in mute terror as trunk after trunk was broken open by the three murderous-looking gorillas, superintended by nine reckless-looking bearded ruffians, bristling with loaded barrels. The immigrants were drafted out one by one and submitted to a rigorous overhaul, after which they were ordered to sit down in full view of the robbers, who kept them focused while the spoilation of property was going on. An old immigrant from Rockland, Ohio, came very nearly being shot by reason of an unseasonable locacity, having ventured an opinion that the darn skunks wanted skinning for their sacrilege proceedings in robbing the saints. The verbose Mormon was made to go on his knees and apologise for his unsaintly expression, whilst a six-shooter peered significantly into each ear. After rifling the caravan to their satisfaction, the brigands rode off leisurely in the direction of Mount Valley, first giving strict injunctions to the immigrants not to move on for three hours. Whilst the robbery was being perpetrated, Elder Pricehurst, in charge of the immigrants, and who was in San Francisco in the fall of 1876, declares that he recognised in the leader of the gang a man named Frank Gardiner who kept a drinking saloon in that city, and whose previous career in Australia, it is said, forms a remarkably lively chapter in the criminal annals of that country. This man, it is asserted, was at one time a notorious Australian bushranger, the terror of New South Wales, whose highways for some four years were almost absolutely under the tollship of the lawless army at his command. After serving a term of imprisonment scarcely commensurate with the enormity of his offences, Gardiner fixed upon San Francisco as a scene of his further labours, and here, at his saloon, which was little else than a gambling den and a resort for the scum and dregs of the city, the frequent recital of his daring deeds fired his auditors with a spirit of emulation, a hankering after a free life of a brigand. And instead of being looked upon with loathing, the man became elevated in the opinion of his hearers into a very hero, compared to whom the victors of Bull Run were very small potatoes indeed. It is pretty clear that in the small drinking saloon at Candy Street, Gardiner matured his plans against the peace and safety of the American citizens, and organised the band of ruffians who on Monday night last deprived the poor, weary pilgrims of a few hard-earned dollars, the fruit, perhaps, of many a year of bitter toil. The caravan reached this city last night and, on learning particulars, officers Blaine and Van Deacon at once dispatched forces in several directions with the object of catching the marauders. I chose to do a story about Patrick John Kelly because during my research I found that he had an ancestral link to Rosie Kelly. She was featured in episode 12, where she was murdered by her husband Patrick McNamara. Rosie was Patrick Kelly's cousin. Rosie's daughter Annie went to be cared for by Miles Kelly Jr., Patrick's brother. Miles Kelly Sr. was the brother of Timothy Kelly, Rosie's father. 
Miles and Timothy and their families came to New South Wales together on the ship Herald in 1841. Timothy's wife passed away in 1857 and married again in 1858 to Mary Cushion. Mary was previously married to David Cushion. They had four children in this marriage. One of them was Mary Ann Cushion, who married Patrick John Kelly in 1857. A bit confusing, right? So they were cousins, but not by blood. It gives insight on how small the growing colony was, and the fruition of the old saying, It's a small world. Thank you for listening to Morpeth Moments. I hope you return to hear about more stories about the people and places of Morpeth and its surrounding districts. Bye for now.